Welcome to the Harry Tiggs Variety Show. You will be assimilated. The Harry Tiggs Variety Show with Michael Miano. With interviews, debates, going far beyond the boundaries of tradition. Now, here is Michael Miano. Michael Miano, and uh, just a couple of announcements before I bring on Mr. Lloyd Dale. Um, we are no longer continuing the Harry Ticks Variety Show. As you may already know, you are now tuned into Miano Gone Wild Radio. And the goal is to offer up a new podcast style. Uh, being that I did not see the effectivity, if that's a word, um, of what we were doing before with the Harry Ticks Variety Show. And uh, the goal now is to offer random podcasts that will be planned out throughout the week, uh, maybe two to one or two uh, each week, even three, um, if time allows. And the goal will be to um, bring about teachings, to have discussions and debates and interviews, all for the edification and the encouragement of the saints. To offer up, again, something that is highlighted throughout my ministry is a zeal empowered by knowledge. And uh, that's what we're looking to do. So many of you may know that here at the Blue Point Bible Church and in my personal life, uh, as I'm being discipled through the teachings at the Blue Point Bible Church, um, we are calling this the season of fire pretty much the entire summer. And uh, we're focused on synonyms of fire. And we've been talking about uh, the book of Exodus, where ultimately that's what we're looking at in Scripture. And we're connecting that to the book of Revelation, where you see the second Exodus motif. And uh, we're also allowing that to uh, apply in our lives. Again, understanding God's love, God is a consuming fire, God is love, um, understanding passion for the word, passion for the things of God, and uh, also judgment. Judgment as we understand it contextually. Many of you know I'll be participating in a debate with Mr. Joel Sexton in August, starting Monday, August 6th, matter of fact. The best way to access that debate will be through the Preterist Smackdown Facebook group. However, I'll be making all of those details available as well. So uh, also, as far as judgment, looking at how that applies in our lives, the purification aspect of judgment, um, how it moves us away from things that are not godly, uh, moves us away from things that may be condemned, if you will, and uh, allows us to see a more beautiful reality in our lives. So that's what, we're, that's what I'm pretty much going to be bringing about here on the podcast. That's the interviews I'm looking for. That's the discussion that I'm looking to foster in my uh, study right now in my life and in the season. So I'm going to bring Lloyd Dell on. I see that he's already called into the show, and I'm excited because this is a long-awaited podcast. I know many people were looking forward to this. I've even received messages about it. And what I want to do is just bring us into a time of prayer, and then we're going to go into a song, and I'll bring Lloyd Dell on right after that moment uh, of song. So let's... Uh, Approach the Lord. Let's set our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith. When we look into the common prayer, today they remind us of a 
Saint Clodosano of Mantu. Born to wealthy parents in Mantu, Italy, Ascana Andriesi, at, five, at age five, heard the voice of God saying, life and death consist in loving God. She was then given a vision of heaven and of the Trinity. Tradition has it that Osana learned to read and write by divine revelation and began studying theology after this vision. Against her parents' wishes, she longed to join the Third Order of Dominicans, but she would have to wait 37 years to complete her vows. Upon the untimely death of her parents, Osana committed her life to serving, serving Christ and caring for her family of siblings. She was privy to ongoing holy visions and was reputed to have received the stigmata, the wounds of Christ. She spent her life aiding the poor and sick and speaking out boldly against aristocrats who lived lavish lives while others suffered. O Lord, let my soul rise up to meet you as the day rises to meet the sun. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is, will, and shall be forever. Life and death consist in loving you, O God. John of Christostrum, a 4th century preacher and bishop of Constantinople, said, Our spirit should be quick to reach out towards God, not only when it is engaged in meditation, at other times also, when it is carrying out its duties, caring for the needy, performing works of charity, or giving generously in the service of others. Our spirit should long for God and call him to mind, so that these works may be seasoned with the salt of God's love, and so make a palatable offering to the Lord of the universe. Mighty God, I do indeed appreciate common prayer, as it reminds us that while we may not always agree with differing traditions or understandings of your word, Lord, we can find unity in the essentials. We can find unity in the foundational aspects of our faith, Lord, where we look to you, where we know you are indeed the Christ who suffered. I think of today's common prayer, Lord. I think of bringing on Mr. Lloyd Dale, and I think of uh, just conversations that are always happening within the Christian community. For your glory, Lord, ever reforming. And I just pray that you go before Mr. Dale and I and you uh, you allow us to have conversation that does set in mind and does establish again and again the foundation of you, Lord, of your truth, of the scriptures as the source of truth, Lord. And that we would be edified, the saints would be edified, and that all would be encouraged. Thank you, Lord, for going before us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Again, we're going to go into a quick song here, and we'll be right back.
All right. Well, we are back here, Miano Gone Wild Radio. Uh, Mr. Dale, can you hear me? And uh, just want to make sure that the mic is working. I can hear you just fine. I trust that you can hear me as well. Oh, that's fantastic. It's great to hear from you. It's good to be with you. Thank you much. That's great. Amen. All right. Well, uh, now I'm excited, and uh, I know this has been a long, you know, long time coming. And uh, I appreciate your graciousness and correspondence and uh, in working with me to uh, get the show going. So thank you. You're welcome. All things are, most things that are worth having are worth waiting for. Amen. Oh, that's great. So I figured the best way to do this is to kind of just uh, explain to you what I'm hoping we can get out of our podcast and then hear the same from you and then jump right into it. Is that, does that work for you? Yes, that sounds good. Okay, great. So I'm sitting here this morning and I'm looking through, you know, some of our correspondence and things I had marked out. And the goal ultimately of this podcast is going to be honest and studious discussion. You know, just going through some of the things that we've talked about in correspondence. I've read through some of your articles, um, allowing you the opportunity to share with some people that may not have heard of your ministry. And, uh, then to mark out some points for possible future podcasts or even future correspondence uh, and future study, of course. And that's my, that's my goal this morning. That's what I'm hoping for. And uh, I'd like to hear what you're hoping for. And then again, j- just jump right into it. Well, that pretty well sums up what I'm hoping for as well. The thing that I appreciate and desire the most is conscientious, good study, accurate, study of the word of God to try to find out what God has actually told us through the word. Amen. Amen. So uh, can you please, you know, I've gotten to know you a bit through correspondence, but I don't think I, I know as much. I've read some of your website. Can you share maybe a little bit about your journey in Christ, your journey to preterism and ultimately where you're at right now? Uh, Yes, I can. I was born into a Christian family, a Christian ranching family, and I spent the first uh, 14, 15 years of my life as a ranch boy. (laughs) I uh, first learned of Christ in a little American uh, Sunday school, American Sunday school program that was being undertaken out here in South Dakota at that time. I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior when I was about seven years old and uh, have endeavored to uh, follow Jesus ever since then. Now, of course, there's ups and downs with everybody, mm-hmm. and so such was my case as well. Uh, my family was, were Christian, but they were nominally church because of the vast distances that we lived away from any uh, church. Uh, we lived out in the country 35 miles from the closest town, and that also was the closest church. Uh, so it wasn't, we didn't, we did not make it to church every Sunday morning. Uh, but my mother was desirous to see us have a church background, and uh, when it came time for me to go to high school, I was privileged to become part of a, of a fledgling uh, new Christian non-denominational high school. It was started in South Dakota, and so I attended there uh, all four years of high school, uh, boarding away from home. From there, I went to college, uh, got a bachelor's degree in biology, 
as well as in physical education. Uh, was active in campus ministries, both in high school and college. Uh, after I finished my college degree, I became a biology teacher in hmm. Lemon, South Dakota, uh, where I remained as a biology teacher for the next 17 years until I lost my job over a creation evolution flap in the public school system there. Now, it, hmm. uh, so, you know, I've been there, done that, so to speak. I pastor, I became an ordained minister. I pastored two churches, one in South Dakota and one in North Dakota. And then uh, after I left that ministry, I set aside literally thousands of hours to just personally study Scripture myself to try to, well, first of all, the question I wanted to answer most of all is what does the Bible actually teach us about Israel? And that proved to be a very, very interesting and illuminating study in my life. And, of course, it's what led me into preterism. Hmm. Wow. Okay. You know, I appreciate some of the things you had shared there because that also gave me more insight into some of the discussions that we have had um, in other areas. You know, I think of such things as covenant creation and our discussion there. Um, Now I, I, I can understand you know, your background and understand some of the insight that you would offer to that conversation. So I'm glad I asked you to share um, a little bit about that. So, you know, it's funny that you bring up Israel and preterism, because as you know, in some of our correspondence, I marked out, uh, that was an article I had read by you um, that you, you actually, I believe had told me that was a good idea for me to read was the brief, a brief history of Israel. And in that article, you know, I have a quote that you had said, Uh, quite a few quotes, actually. Um, You had said uh, basically that we need to understand, you know, if we don't understand the history there of Israel, that we end up uh, a proper understanding of this great division, this is a quote, is of great importance to the proper understanding of the Bible, especially Bible prophecy from this point on. So I imagine that's what you're alluding to there, that uh, that led to your understanding of preterism. Um, You've seen some of my outlining, as you know, I've read through your article. So I'm curious to see a an area that you believe is very important. Like where should I really be pressing in when I'm looking at old covenant Israel and I'm trying to understand that narrative um, in the Bible? Well, I believe that old covenant Israel is the key to properly understanding the Bible. Uh, If we do not understand how God presented his relationship with Israel as a marriage, and, and it's obviously a metaphor because God didn't actually marry Israel in, in the sense that a man marries a woman. But God clearly presents himself as Israel's husband. He presents his his relationship with Israel in that covenant marriage relationship. And, uh, you know, I find it really interesting. There are so many people out there, and I'm not going to name names today. That doesn't serve any purpose at all. But there are different people, different places that, you know, they decide, well, for one thing I've heard several times, well, God's not a bigamist. He couldn't have two wives. And so because of that belief system, which has nothing to do with Scripture, uh, they determined that, well, for instance, uh, some say that there was no marriage at all until Christ married the bride in the first century. 
Well, that's simply not true because God presents himself as the husband of Israel. And he presents him as a true and faithful husband and Israel as an unfaithful wife. Now, God divorced, according to law, that unfaithful wife and put her out of the covenant relationship and out of the land and out of his sight, as it says in Second Kings chapter 17, verse 20. Uh, so that's very important because if that is true, then when we get down to the first century, there is no Israel. It just is not. Josephus records that when uh, the two houses of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, went into captivity, that brought an end to Israel as it was known. And so for someone to prognosticate that God was divorcing Israel in the first century just is not biblically accurate. God didn't divorce Israel in the first century. God divorced Israel in the 8th century B.C. He put them out of the covenant. He put them out of the relationship with him, and he put them out of the land and left them there for a specific purpose, for a specific time. And, of course, that time was the coming, the first advent of Jesus Christ. And then he picks up on that story again and begins to deal with Israel, who now are not in the land. The people are not in the land, but they are scattered out, swallowed up among the nations of the of the entire known world at that time. And God does that for a purpose. He does that so that he can expand Israel to include all the families of the earth. As we read in Genesis that God was intending to bless all the families of the earth. Well, the new covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But there's no mention of any, I don't like this word, but I'll use it here, Gentiles, in that scenario because you have the house of Israel who are Israelites, you have the house of Judah who are Israelites, and if that doesn't somehow or another include the other nations, then there's no new covenant for the people of the nation. But, of course, God expanded Israel through that divorce by casting them out, putting them out into the, into the nations, uh, in effect making them the nations themselves to some degree, and mm-hmm. then being Jesus Christ came to redeem those lost sheep of the house of Israel. I mean, that's, that's all very important information in history given in the scripture that if any part of it is is missed, then we're not going to correctly understand what's going on in the Old Testament, let alone what's under, going on in the New Testament. Amen. Amen. I know in one of our uh, emails, we, you had referred to Second uh, Kings chapters 17 through 20 as being a very necessary uh, area of scripture, and then you had noted different uh, passages there that should be marked out um, to kind of for more, you know, closer examination. And I appreciated that because it, it definitely uh, one of the areas I've been growing lately is, and this is being very honest, but hey, it's in a, it's the truth. Is as I examine over the last couple of years of growing in doctrine, I think I become guilty of saying things that sound good, however, not necessarily 
supporting them with the, uh, you know, the bulk of scripture. You might be able to find things here and there to connect, but you want to really develop the narrative understanding. And the only way to do that, not by pontificating and making points that you seem to agree with, but rather, you know, really supporting it by scripture. So I appreciated, you know, your email where it brought me back and it really caused me to uh, examine some things and to go through uh, my understanding. Because one of the things that you marked out for me that I, and I'm not sure that I'm fully understanding it yet, so I'm going to ask you to explain, is that I was making a big case that Jerusalem, right, first century Jerusalem, is the divorced, that was one of my teachings, that was was the, uh, not the divorced, but uh, no, it was the betrothed um, bride that, you know, again, was being focused on um, in regards to Old Covenant Israel being judged and the coming of the Lord. I mean, you, then you had said to me in an email, you said, you know, was first century Jerusalem really Old Covenant Israel? And I believe that's the point you just point you made, um, that that's not the case. However, then I, yeah, I, I guess what I'm what I'm not fully understanding then is so then who was who was Israel in the first century? Like who just in a plain statement, who would I what would be my answer there? Well, there was no Israel in the first century. Because the house of Israel, the ten northern tribes, and most of the two southern tribes as well, had been divorced and put out of the covenant, sent away into the Assyrian captivity, exile, diaspora, where they remained. It was, there's never any evidence, in spite of what some men have tried to do, some persons will say have tried to do, to, to say that the house of Israel returned with the house of Judah after the Babylonian captivity. That's just not so. And if one properly understands the narrative, you know that that's not so because God made it impossible for them to come back that way because he had in mind a special gathering for Israel that was to take place during the harvest in Judah, which Jesus Christ clearly identified as the harvest in Judah in the first century where he told the disciples to look out upon the fields for they are ripe unto harvest so the first century was a harvest in judah and of course judah remained in covenant with uh god although not in any faithful sense uh because judah then became mystery babylon the great the harlot of revelation and uh we that's clearly established in the old testament that israel the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, were harlot kingdoms. And as a result, the northern kingdom was divorced, scattered, swallowed up among the nations to become, in effect, the nations themselves. And the, the Judah went away into the Babylonian captivity. Then they were granted the privilege to come back, but only about forty-five to 50,000 the most of the people of Judah came back with some from Benjamin and some from the priest group, uh, came back into the land and rebuilt what they call the second temple. But that's not Israel. That's Judah. It's Jerusalem. And from that point on, the Bible focuses on Jerusalem and Judah uh, with occasional mention of a uh, foray into the tribe of Benjamin. And just a quick point on that, uh, most everybody considers the people in the first century living in Palestine as Israel. Well, that's not true because they weren't, that's not their status 
according to God. And uh, also, uh, God had a special purpose for the house of Israel. He had a special purpose for the house of Judah as well. And so Judah, long standing the vessels of wrath, and the house of Israel were to become the vessels of mercy, as we read in Romans and mm-hmm. in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Amen. Wow. Yeah, actually, that's, that does make a lot of sense. And uh, a text that came to mind was um, the, when Jesus Christ was born in the book of Luke, right? Uh, remember the uh, prophet Simeon, the man Simeon there in the temple, and he says that you will cause the rising and falling. This child will cause the rising and falling of many in Israel which, you know, basically makes the case that he's calling Israel from, you know, the, where they were in their dead state, in their divorced state. So uh, that's a good point. I, I definitely appreciate that. And it, it gives me, again, it gives me more insight into some of the things we had corresponded about. I remember you, you calling my attention to a statement I had made that, that I said that um, when they were exiled, they became the Samaritans by false worship. And I know you, you called that. That's where you called my attention to the topic, and you brought me to Second Kings. So I, I begin, I'm beginning to see what your point is there. Um, however, I do want to go back and examine some things because I do know, you know, I've listened to Alan Bondar teach on that, where he does teach that there was a betrothal and a, what you alluded to before. Um, I know you didn't want to mention names. Sorry about that, but um, I'm mentioning them. Um, but I know he had taught about betrothal and about marriage in the first century. And what would be the main reason why that would be a, a incorrect statement? Well, because if we go back into the Old Testament and examine it carefully, we read that God himself betrothed Israel to himself in Exodus chapter 6. We read very clearly a betrothal statement there where God speaks to Israel, says he's going to gather them, He's going to bring them out of where they are. He's going to bring them to himself on the wings of the eagle. And he's going to make them, in effect, his bride. And so then we read beyond that betrothal in Exodus 6, in Exodus 19, and also to some degree in other portions of Exodus as well, that God then did do that. He brought Israel out of the land that they were in, the land of Egypt. He brought them to himself at Sinai. And then Moses mediated the marriage covenant between the, between Israel and God. And in that sense, then, through that covenant relationship, which God bound himself to, as well as he bound Israel to that relationship. Now, in that relationship, God was a faithful husband. Israel was an unfaithful wife. And uh, to say that there was no... You know that the Old Testament only presents a uh, betrothal and no marriage until you get to the New Testament and the marriage of Jesus to the bride. That's just not accurate. That's not the way God presents it. If we actually go in and read the marriage narrative that's given throughout the Old Testament, where God betrothed Israel to Himself, He brought Israel out to Himself, He married Israel with Moses mediating the marriage covenant at Mount Sinai, and then he divorced Israel and put them out of that marriage covenant because of their unfaithfulness. But he didn't divorce Judah. He remained 
in effect married to Judah. And I know people have, some people at least have a real problem with this because they think, well, that means God's a bigamist and God couldn't possibly be a bigamist. Well, no, that doesn't mean that at all. Remember, we're talking metaphor here. We are talking about God's presentation of his own relationship with this people group. And this people group is very varied, if you please. It's it's a broad group of people uh, encompassing the 12 tribes of Israel, and actually 13 and 14, depending on how you break it out. Because the Levites were a tribe of Israel, but they're not really ever counted in the 12 tribes. And uh, then you get into Revelation, you see that the tribe of Dan and the tribe of uh, Ephraim are missing, apparently, from Revelation. Of course, that's not really true, but because people don't understand the narrative in its completeness, then they don't understand exactly what's taking place there either. So, yeah, it's, 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 to me it's extremely important. I, I don't think there's anything more important in Scripture than understanding God's Old Testament marriage relationship with Israel. Now, it's not only presented in that marriage relationship, it's also presented as the two flocks of sheep. If you go back into the Old Testament, you can read that God has two flocks, the flock of Judah and the flock of the northern kingdom, the house of Israel. And then he deals with those two flocks. And then when we get down to the New Testament, we see that he's still dealing with those two flocks. The one flock is out scattered, swallowed up among the nations. The other flock is more or less in the land, although less is probably the better statement there because there were probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple million uh, Jews, and by that I don't mean all the tribes of Israel. The Bible never refers to all the tribes of Israel as Jews. The Jews only represent one tribe, that's the tribe of Judah. Even when we get down into the New Testament, we read that Jesus uh, sought out his disciples from among the Benjaminites, and they were never referred to as Jews. In fact, they often referred to the people of Jerusalem as those Jews, as they wrote the various documents that they produced for the New Testament, and which shows that they were fearful of those Jews, then they didn't see themselves as being Jews because they were of the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin was to be the tribe of the light. And that's an issue we won't get into today probably, but very important issue as far as the complete understanding of Old Testament, New Testament scriptures are concerned. I'm sitting here thinking, uh, one thing I'm thinking about is I thought I had read somewhere in, in a good resource that um, the tribe, when the tribes of Benjamin and Judah had come out of the Babylonian captivity, that they were therefore referred to as Jews. You're saying that would be erroneous, that that's not a correct assessment? No, they they were referred to as Jews because the predominant group were the people of the tribe of Judah. And because the term Jew is a corruption, if you please, of the term Judah, uh, mm-hmm. then the people that came back were called Jews. But if you search Scripture carefully, we see that there's no mention of Jews until we get down to about the time of the Babylonian captivity. 
And then the Babylonians began to refer to these people of Jerusalem as Judahites. I'll use that word. It's an modern English word. But uh, And then this term uh, eventually became the term that was adopted for the people group calling themselves the Jews. Actually, the one tribe when they came back, but over time there was a division between those two tribes because then we get down to the New Testament, we have Galilee of the nations, uh, which is primarily made up of the tribe of Benjamin, and we have Jerusalem and the land of Judea, which is primarily made up of the uh, people of Judah. Now, of course, we must understand that always down through the history of the of Israel, speaking of the total national group there, uh, there was intercourse among the people. You know, they traveled back from one tribe to another. They intermarried between tribes. They shared lands within the tribes. So it's not strange at all that we get down to the New Testament where we read of one woman who was one of the northern tribes. But that is not in any way, shape, or form proof that the ten tribes returned with the two tribes from the Babylonian captivity because the simple fact is they did not and for complete confirmation of that if one wants to delve into some really serious reading Dr. Brian Petrie has got a book out called Jesus the Tribulation and the end of the the end of the end of the exile uh, which documents everything I'm saying and that book was written after my books were written and and I found it very interesting when I found that book and had an opportunity to read it and John Anderson and I interviewed uh, Dr. Brant Petrie on the Voice of Reason several times it was very very interesting to get that background that support for what I had come to understand myself and what John Anderson had come to understand he kept asking questions, and nobody had the answers to the question until John and I happened to get together. Uh, actually, we were introduced to each other by uh, John Bray down in Lakeland, Florida. And so uh, John and I then became fast friends. We literally spent hundreds of hours discussing these things by telephone. And uh, when I began to share my understanding of Old Testament history with John. It, began, it confirmed everything he saw in Scripture, but didn't really have any way to actually confirm it. And so as a result of that, John Anderson and I became very good friends, and it was a great blow to myself and many others when John Anderson suddenly passed away. Hmm. I believe it. Yeah, that's... Uh... You know, there's a lot of people that have paved the way for uh, some of the great studies that we see. And I know John Anderson's name is always brought up in conversations um, in that regard. Um, so, you know, the work is definitely continuing and appreciated, you know. I uh, wrote down that book, Jesus, the Tribulation and the End of Exile. That looks to be a, a good resource here. And, um, you know, you mentioned John Bray. John Bray is actually very instrumental in the leading of Blue Point Bible Church, which I now lead here i preach at and uh they he was very big in the in instrumental in their coming to the understanding of preterism so uh definitely praise god for his work 
Yes, John Bray you know, had a big impact. Yeah, Unfortunately, amen. he amen. didn't understand the Israel issue any better than most other people do. Hmm. You, you know, there's John another book I'm thinking of. Pardon me? I'm sorry. I'm I, sorry to cut you off there. Um, I was thinking... There's a book I'm thinking of that I have to get my hands on again. It was something where I guess I got most of my understanding about Israel. I have read some of John Bray's resources on Israel. He has a little booklet um, about Israel. And then there's a book I'm thinking of. I can't, I can't remember right now. Um, I'm going to have to think about it, but, or I'll find my notes on it. But I have a book that basically was, I guess, formative to my understanding of Israel and now that we're we're talking about it this much in depth, you're definitely challenging me to go back and uh, reassess that. You know my understanding of that, and uh, prayerfully, I'll have that as a an area of study that I'll come to a better you know understanding of teaching others about some of the details you're bringing out. So I have to appreciate that. And I'm sorry I cut you off before. Well, that's all right. I've pretty much finished. I just would make this comment at this time. I've spent at least the last twenty to twenty-five years, and it's probably more than that, trying to find any good commentaries on the Assyrian captivity and they just don't exist because by and large Christian scholarship has ignored because of their biases that they have coming in their church worlds uh, the failure to study the Old Testament scriptures and that was a big problem among Greeks in the first century that's why many of the the we'll call them mistakes or errors in judgment and understanding occurred in the first, second, third, and fourth centuries is because the people then were trying to base everything that they wanted to take out of the scriptures on the New Testament scriptures that they were getting their hands on, the documents written by Paul and Peter, James and others, uh, as well as the apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and not John, by the way. I do not believe that John wrote the fourth gospel. He wrote revelation but he didn't write the fourth gospel and if you study the language used in the two it's pretty apparent that they are not written by the same author and i'm absolutely convinced uh that the fourth gospel was actually written by the only person in scripture that scripture declares that jesus loved and that's the man lazarus and we find in several occasions once in Mark, I believe it is, and then in, a, in, in other places, especially in the gospel, what we call the gospel of John, the fourth gospel, uh, God, Jesus loved Lazarus. But you can't find any reference, any place in any of the gospels or any of the other texts where it says that Jesus loved John, Jesus loved Matthew, Jesus loved... Now, don't get me wrong. Obviously, Jesus loved all the disciples, but for some reason, there's a special affinity that the Bible projects between Lazarus and Jesus. And Jesus is the one who recognized Lazarus as the one whom he loved. Uh, the Jews of the first century recognized Lazarus as the one who Jesus loved. And therefore, I'm completely convinced that Lazarus, who, by the way, was a well-educated, a wealthy uh, person of his day uh, would have all the contacts within the temple group and so on that uh, his wealth and and prestige would have permitted 
And John, of course, didn't. He was relatively unknown to the temple uh, crowd because he was an itinerant fisherman, so to speak. And uh, John was chosen by Jesus Christ to carry the message of the revelation, but uh, John didn't write, in my opinion at least, did not write the fourth gospel. So that's the place where I vary. Uh, I think there's an incredible amount of evidence to support that, by the way, uh, if one's only willing to accept it and, and take a look at it. And, and I know people that have been presented with that material and just flat out reject it because they're just absolutely determined that John wrote the fourth gospel. And they're not willing to accept any evidence except the evidence supposedly handed down to us through history that John is the author of the fourth gospel. I think it's funny that you brought that up because we just had this discussion at uh, the church recently. We were talking about that in our Sunday school, adult Sunday school. And we went around the room and I remember I brought up Dave Curtis actually has a teaching on that where he, he stands that Lazarus, I believe wrote the gospel of John and uh, that Lazarus was the man being spoken about in regards to uh, the one he loved the most. And I remember we went around the room and basically my, my whole case was it didn't matter. I said, I, I haven't looked into it as in depth as I should. So I would go back and reassess it. I had mentioned Dave Curtis's resource. Do you have anything written on your website um, about that? Uh, not really, but my good friend, Jim Phillips has written extensively on it. He has a website, the disciple whom Jesus loved where his book, The Disciple Whom Jesus Loved, his interviews with various people, and a, a host of other good materials all exist, establishing the point that uh, that Lazarus wrote uh, the gospel we call the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel. I'm also no, convinced great. that Lazarus wrote Re Hebrews. Now, I don't know of anybody else that's making that case, and but Lazarus is the one that's really positioned properly to make that the arguments that are found in the book of Hebrews, in the letter to the Hebrews, and much more so than anybody else. You know, most people today seem to settle on the idea that it was Paul. I don't think mm -hmm. Paul wrote Hebrews. Paul was too busy doing other things. I, I think that Lazarus is the most likely candidate for the author of Hebrews. And I don't have the evidence for that that has it been established for uh, Lazarus being the author of the fourth gospel. But, you know, just go to the website, The Disciples Whom Jesus Loved. There's an abundance of very carefully researched and laid out material dealing with Lazarus as the author of the fourth gospel. Wow, I appreciate that. Yeah, I wrote that down. That sounds like a, a good resource there. Um, so I want to bring us into a little bit of discussion about the book of Revelation. I, I know you had made an allusion before. You said something about um, the book of Revelation. I'm trying to remember. I wanted to write it down. But either way, hopefully it'll come back to me. But my goal was to bring us into a little bit of discussion regarding the millennium and some areas of that discussion. I know you had wanted to uh, respond to some points brought up by uh, Mr. Adam Marshall and I'd love to have you know some conversation in that regard, and then also maybe get into some points about the resurrection of the dead and mark those out. 
And again, my goal being that in time we can have further uh, discussion about these things, whether it's personal correspondence or here on the show. So when we get into the millennium, you know, what, what are some points that you believe, or actually the book of Revelation, you know, because I, I wrote in my notes here, it says uh, Lloyd brings out a lot of great points um, about the book of Revelation. So what are some key points that you think need to be brought up about the book of Revelation and, and you know, kind of lead us in that conversation? Well, not specifically about the book of Revelation for just a little bit here, but there's a, an issue that's very important for me. And I think a lot of bad doctrine has been developed over the result of this particular issue. And here's the issue. The Greek has what is referred to as an aorist tenth. Now, the English language does not have an aorist tenth. And so the translators, by and large, they vary from that to some degree, especially the King James Version, uh, doesn't always translate the aorist tense as past tense. Sometimes it's translated as present tense, sometimes as a future tense in the King James. But the, the aorist tense is not a past tense verb. It's just, it has a tense that we don't have in English. And probably the best way to translate it is as a continuing present tense rather than a past tense. But for whatever reason, the translators back when, when they began to translate the Greek into the English language, determined, you know, pretty much arbitrarily, as far as I can determine, that they were going to translate the aorist tense as a past tense verb. Now, as a result of that, there's a huge number of places. Uh, one that comes to mind right now is not so much the actual reference, but the statement that we have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Well, that's an aorist tense verb there. And the fact of the matter is, given the total narrative of the New Testament, Nobody had been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It was a process that was ongoing throughout the first century that ended in 70 AD. So it's a processional thing. It's process. And much, much better that we should translate these aorist tense verbs, at least in many, many cases, as present continuous tense in our English language. Therefore, we read that we are being seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are being translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and so on and so forth. And there's a number of those references in Revelation as well, so we have to be sure that when we read a passage that we're not reading it incorrectly. Now, one passage that I think of, not about the arrow's tent, but in Revelation chapter 9, we have a, an interesting verse, actually the very first verse of Revelation chapter 9, and it's translated in the King James, and the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him, now in other words, this star is actually a, person was given the key of the bottomless 
Now, that's not, of course, a good translation. If one goes into that study and, and, and looks at the translation there, uh, the star, John wasn't watching that star fall. In, in the actual Greek, that star had fallen already. Well, when did that star fall? Well, in chapter 8, verse 10. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning it as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers, upon the fountains and the waters. Now, the question, what does the word heaven refer to there? I want to hear your answer to that before I go any further. It says heaven. Let's see. Um, I would say that the heavens there is speaking in the, um, the sense of what, you know, again, I don't know how to qualify it. I don't know how to, I would explain that. Uh, the spiritual realm of God, I guess, if you will. Well, if that's the case, then as a covenant theologian, and I may be mislabeling you a little bit there, uh, you have a problem. Because if we look at covenant as it's taught by many of the moderns today, uh, heaven and earth refers to uh, Jewish things or, in some cases, to the capital of a nation, and stars we refer to the leaders of the nation. Now, why is it that when we go through all of those passages in the Old Testament that heaven doesn't mean the place where God lives, but all of a sudden, when we get to Revelation, it's the only thing it means. See, I don't think that's legitimate scholarship. If heaven is, as we have said in the Old Testament, actually it can refer to many things because we go back to Genesis. We read that Joseph had a dream. He dreamed that uh, there were a bunch of stars, and all those stars... Uh, bowed down and worshipped him. And he told his brothers, and they got mad. Well, he told his dad, and his dad said, and I paraphrase a little bit here, said, what are you talking about? You're trying to tell me that me, your mother, and all your brothers are going to bow down and worship you? See, Jacob understood quite well what the dream Joseph had was. Mm -hmm. the, the son referred to Joseph. The moon referred to his mother, and the stars referred to his brothers. And so now, if that's true, then later on in, in, in the Old Testament, we read that, that uh, stars fell from heaven. Well, everybody understands that if one star fell from heaven, that is a literal star, that it would obliterate this little planet. Uh, that's not an issue at all. So who are these stars? Well, when the stars fall from heaven, it's the fall of the leadership of the nation. And in the mm -hmm. case of Israel, it would be the leadership of Israel. If it's somebody else, it's some other nation, such as Edom or Babylon or whatever, it would be the leadership of that nation. And so when we get to Revelation, we better be a little bit more careful how we actually look at those words. Because I'm convinced, and I think it bears out very well that heaven in Revelation generally refers to Rome. And when a star falls from Rome, it's the person, 
coming out of Rome due to bidding of the Roman Empire. And that, of course, is exactly what happened historically in Revelation chapter 8 uh, when this great star fell. That's clearly an allusion to Vespasian. And it, all that stuff took place when Vespasian made his first boat trip, so to speak, into the Promised Land area. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, so now going on with Revelation just a little bit, we read about Vespasian movement from Rome to the Promised Land in 810. Then we read more about that in 9-1, and subsequently we see that uh, this uh, star is a hymn, and later on in about verse 11, he becomes a king or a commander, uh, and he's the commander uh, who is a messenger of not the bottomless pit. See, that's a horrible rendition that we find used consistently in the King James it doesn't appear in the Greek there's two terms in the Greek one is better translated pit and one is best translated abyss so you've got the pit and you've got the abyss they're not the same place and so when we read up here that this in chapter 9 he's given the key to the shaft of the abyss or the pit excuse me given the key to the pit and, of course, that pit, the shaft of the abyss, is, in my understanding at least, is Galilee. And if we read the history of Vespasian's war against the Jews, so to speak, uh, he started in the northernmost portion of Galilee and marched down across the land, wiping out one city after another, uh, and so on, and, and we find that's exactly what's being described here in Revelation chapter 9. Okay, so now, there are a lot of folk out there that want to insist that Revelation is recapitulation upon recapitulation, and, and it's true. There are recapitulations in Revelation. However, there's also non-recapitulatory passages, and chapter 8, and chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 20 establish a continuous narrative, not recapitulation. Now, we just talked about 8 and 9. I'm going to skip 11. I'm going to go to 20 because 20 is very important here in this scenario. Here we read about, and I saw a messenger come down from heaven, that's Rome, having the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. Well, now see here, we see a continuous narrative. First of all, in 8, a great star fell. In 9, a star had fallen. This person is identified as a messenger of destruction. He's the commander of an army, and of course, that's Vespasian. He's the commander of the Roman army that came in to wage war under Nero's orders to quell the riots of the Jews. And so then when we get to 20, the, we have this same messenger that already has the key to the abyss. Now, see, he was given, first of all, in, in 9, the key to the shaft of the abyss, and he opened the shaft, 
that is Galilee, and great smoke really rolled out. And now he's opening, using that key and a chain to open the war, the war here in a new fashion and to bind the entity. Now, he lays hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the slanderer and the adversary, and bound him a thousand years. Now, you notice I've changed a little bit of the wording there. In most Bibles, you read that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. Well, I think those words are bogus. The, the words used there should be translated, not transliterated. And if we translate those words, what we actually have is a dragon that's the serpent of old. He's the slanderer and the adversary. And he bound him a thousand years. All right, now, many people have acknowledged that the first century adversary of Jesus Christ and the early Christians, if I may use that term, were the Jews. All right? So why is this not speaking of the Jews when they're bound? I would, you know, be very interested in having someone give me a solid argument for why that should not be the case here. Because if we go back and look at the situation, the dragon of course, shows up in various places in Scripture. And I'm just going to venture forth a little bit here, and I'm going to say that I believe that dragon is the pagan system of worship of the Greeks and others that came before them. Now, the Greeks in particular were great worshipers of their ancestors. And the reason they worshiped their ancestors, vis-a-vis Zeus and others, was because they lived such a long time. Well, now, Jesus Christ himself refers to the the seat of Zeus as the seat of Satan in Revelation chapter 3, I believe it is, uh, where we have this one particular city that he's referring to, and outside of that city is this huge statuary to Zeus, the god of the Greeks, and, of course, of others before them. Now, Zeus, I believe, we can make a very positive case for being Adam as he turned against God. I don't have time to make that case this morning in the broadcast, but I believe there's a very good case to be made there. And so we have Revelation 20, rather than being recapitulatory, as most are deemed to insist that it must be, it's a part of a continuous narrative referring to the star to the messenger that has the key to the shaft and the key to the abyss and that's a whole different thing the shaft without question is Galilee of the Gentile and the abyss is clearly stated in scripture as being the place where God's judgment is taking place and of course we all know that in 68 to 70 A.D., God's judgment was taking place primarily in the land of Judea. Now, that's not the only place, but it's the principal place of judgment, of God's judgment in the first century. So, you know, that's the case. The two points I would make that I think are very, very, very important is 
the proper translation of the aorist tense verbs uh, all through the letters, the epistle, uh, and then in Revelation as well. And then, of course, the proper understanding of what heaven is. It's not, mm-hmm. in most cases, the abode of God. Uh, it, uh, I believe, in most cases, is a reference to Rome the capital city of the Roman Empire. And so, you know, that obviously puts me at odds with most people, but that's not a new thing in my life. My life took on a very uh, interesting flavor when I chose to take a stand for Jesus Christ in the public school system and was fired for supposedly teaching creation in the public school system instead of evolution. Well, you know, that decision probably cost me somewhere in the neighborhood of three-quarters of a million dollars over the rest of my life. And uh, to say nothing of reputation and status and so many other things. But I would rather, far rather be favorable in the eyes of Jesus Christ supporting the creationist viewpoint than I would supporting some cockamamie evolutionistic nonsense. When put that way, amen. <laughs> um, you know, I, I actually, uh, I know we're we're kind of up against the time here. We're getting there. Um, and you have marked out quite a few different things that I would like to kind of uh, continue study on. And one of the ways I study, I'll, I'll tell you this, um, is I like to have conversation with people. I'm involved in quite a few different conversations right now um, in different regards. And I like to have the conversation and then, you know, go back, do my examination, and then prayerfully, you know, correspond with you. And decide, you know, where how we could proceed with that conversation. If we want to do public conversation, if we want to do, um, which I'm hoping for a public conversation, as I, I imagine you are as well. Um, and, you know, we can continue in that way. So what I like to do is just, you know, get some insights, go back, do my own study, come back, have the conversations, and, and keep going back and forth. And I thought, as I looked through your website and I went through a lot of your resources, I thought that you would be somebody that would be very edifying in my studies and challenging in some regard. And uh, that's why I, I wanted to mark this out as an op- you know, a study moment here. So what I do want to do though, before we get to the end of the show is I, I guess I want to get into that discussion a little bit about the create about creationism. And uh, I guess get a little bit of your perspective as to, because again, we know that the creation community, right? When you say you believe you're a creationist, we know that that's not necessarily a uniform position that doesn't, you know, there's quite a few different aspects of that. So can you maybe share a little bit about your understanding of God's creation? You know, are you, if you fit into any of the titles, um, young earth, old earth, et cetera. Well, I'm pretty much a literalist. I believe that we ought to read the Bible literally wherever it's written literally. And if it's written figuratively, then we better read it figuratively. If it's written as a form of a metaphor, then we better understand the metaphor. And, so we have a numbers of figures of speech within the scripture. We also have a great deal of literal historical fact in scripture. We also have some scientific fact. And I don't believe that scripture is ever wrong when it mentions the scientific fact. And Amen. when we read uh, the scriptures and look at the genealogies that it presents and stuff, we're left with no alternative, in my opinion, 
other than to accept the idea that the earth is relatively young. And there's no basis, in my opinion, for seeing the earth as old, old, old. Uh, I know the evolutionists have spent years trying to make it that way. I remember when I first started looking into this, you know, 40, 50 years ago, uh, the earth was just a few million years old. And now as time has progressed, they've had to march that back till now the earth is literally billions of years old because they are trying to create this incredible, fabulous system we have here. And I'm referring to the earth and its vegetation and so on and so forth as a product of time. Time can't ever produce anything. Time alone cannot produce anything. The only thing that time alone can produce is degradation. The only thing that will occur over time is the gradual destruction of whatever existed. And that's referred to as the law of entropy. Now, my background, of course, is science. I have a bachelor's degree in biological sciences, physical sciences. I have a master's degree in the biological sciences. And I spent a great deal of time t studying towards a Ph.D. in biblical studies. Uh, and because of the bias of the particular school I was enrolled in, uh, they wouldn't accept a preterist uh, getting any credit in their schools. So basically that and some other problems I had forced me out of that program. But I had completed the program for all practical purposes with the one thing being missing, and that is the, the lack of a formal uh, doctrinal thesis. Uh, I believe the olive tree mystery is my doctoral thesis. Uh, it's on my website for anybody that would care to read it. It gives a very extensive and detailed uh, study of God's marriage relationship to Israel and how God himself presents that relationship in the Old Testament and how God intends for that relationship to be transferred into the New Testament and to be understood in the New Testament. And so uh, it's it's all there. Hmm. Amen. Amen. I, uh, you know, I'll tell you what I'll do with uh, some of my study. Um, have you ever read Beyond Creation Science? Uh, yeah, and it's, it, in my opinion, it's extremely biased uh, in the wrong direction. Uh, I, I don't think it's a valid work, frankly. Uh, they criticize, you know, the young earth idea, and they criticize supposed scientists, but they seemingly are totally ignorant of the incredible research that's going on in the scientific community by Christian PhDs. There's there's vast vast chunks of knowledge out there that I believe that those folks have never read. And you know, I I have a, a degree in science, you know, multiple degrees in science. I taught 17 years. I never have seen one credible evidence for evolution. But I'm surrounded daily by credible evidences for God's creative powers. And if we only would accept the fact that God's own narrative, you know, the way it's presented, gives us the fact of creation in six 
literal days. It gives us the fact of creation in the events, and then it gives us the fact of the fall of mankind, which, in my opinion, most people have radically misunderstood. And, uh, you know, therein is a huge problem. If you're wrong there, and I know this is something that, you know, beyond creation science and a lot of these creationists, these covenant creationists and so on and so forth out there hold to. But if you get Genesis wrong, then you're going to get the rest or get Revelation wrong. Well, I agree with that. If you get Genesis wrong, you're going to get Revelation wrong. And Genesis is not some presentation of God's covenant with Israel. Genesis is God's presentation of God's own creative power in the universe to create the planets, the stars, uh, and particularly the planet Earth and the people that inhabit this planet. See, you know I'm a covenant creationist, so I would agree with that. And I would say that that's being demonstrated in the form of him making covenant with Israel. (laughs) I would definitely agree with that point there. There's, you know, I don't hold to an evolutionist view. I don't know enough about science to make a claim in that regard. Um, However, in my understanding, and uh, again, this would be something I'd love to further study out. And uh, I didn't really prepare a lot for this show to go in that direction. But I would love to have some conversation with you in that regard, because again, you've taught biology, you know, science, Um, you won't find this, you know, adamant attitude from me in the, you know, in that, in that regard going against you, because I know that there's a lot of things I don't know. Um, However, I guess I would say the same thing you did in many ways um, about God's creative powers being evident throughout um, all of scripture. And uh, again, I I don't really take a side in that scientific discussion. Um, However, one thing I guess I wanted to ask you was you had said, and I wrote it down in my notes, you said that there's a a lot of research happening by scientific Christians. Um, can you give me maybe a, a resource or maybe a direction to go in some study in that regard, like something that would be good and credible? Well, there's a, there's a group down in Chino, Arizona, uh, made up entirely of men and women with PhDs in their scientific fields and some with master's degrees. And they're uh, going on constant research projects. Now, I don't have – my memory isn't as good as it used to be. You know, I guess that's understandable. I'm going to hit my 80th birthday here in just a few more days. Oh, wow. Amen. uh, So my wife and I celebrated our 60th anniversary, 60th wedding anniversary uh, back on June 6th. So, you know, I've been around a while. I've been at this for a while. And uh, I, you know, I did something that, and I don't say this to brag, I say it just to state a fact, that I don't think many people have done. Now, you got two ways you can study the Bible. Pastors, having been a pastor, I know this to be true, study the Bible to prepare messages. They want to preach to their congregation. They rarely, rarely have opportunity and time to just study the Bible for what the Bible itself presents. Then there's those that uh, have 
done that, to study the Bible for what the Bible presents. But the vast majority of people are just studying the Bible for proof text to support what they already think to be true. And that's most unfortunate. Back in the early 1990s, in fact, I preached, I preached my first preterist message when I preached my father's funeral in 1997. And uh, it it's led to, well, in fact, it just cropped up the other day. I, my wife and I took a 600-mile trip yesterday to take care of some business that we needed to do. And uh, on the way, we stopped at our younger son's home. And his wife has a sister who lives down in Arizona. And there was conversation took place in Arizona. Uh Somebody was down there visiting with her sister and her husband, and they found out that they were from Lemon, and they wanted to know if uh, they knew the Dales in Lemon. And this particular person says, well, yes, Mr. Dale was my my biology teacher, one of the best teachers I ever had. But he's all gone off into a cult now. Well, see, that's what happens. If you deviate from the standard orthodoxy of so-called Christianity, then immediately you're labeled, as I love the title of your former program, the play on the word heretic, heretics. Uh, I just love that. And, you know, it's great to see a sense of humor in these things as well. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we also have to abide by this thing and recognize that if you deviate one little bit from the acceptable orthodoxy of whatever group you're in or were previously in, then you're going to be ostracized by that group, referred to as a heretic or cultist or something else. And so Mm -hmm. I find it really, really strange that clear down in Arizona, I'm labeled as a cultist because I teach preterism. I don't even like that word. The way I love to refer to it is as first century fulfillment. That's what the truth is. The first century is the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to study that out a little bit. I I, I want to have more of a response, a more uh, well-formed response to uh, some of the things you're bringing up in regards to, uh, or even not just a response. I may want to just offer you a different perspective on how I've come to understand covenant creation and then see, maybe explore um, where that would lead us in further discussion and study. So what I'd like to do maybe is plan out a discussion on that, maybe even send you uh, some of my works that I've written up in that regard uh, through court, you know, through email, and uh, then maybe begin some conversation there, uh, if you welcome that, of course. Absolutely, I would welcome it. You know, when I oh. first, I spent three years becoming a preterist myself, and after I'd been, and I didn't know another preterist anywhere in this world, and the first one I found after those three years was John Bray, and so I called John Bray and talked to him, and through him, I was introduced to John Anderson and a whole new world of preterism. 
But when I became a preterist, I didn't even know the word existed. I didn't know I was a preterist. I just knew that the scriptures very clearly present God's marriage relationship with Israel fulfilling and coming to fruition in a new marriage relationship with the new Israel and his son, Jesus Christ. And when, when that happened, I, you know, there was no turning back. But, you know, everybody doesn't take the same track. Most people that I've talked to or heard about uh, became whatever they are because they read a book. Well, I became what I am because I read a book, too. It's called the Bible. And I read it intensively, intensively, intensively for three years. Amen. Yeah, yeah, that's that's important. Careful study is important. You know, that's uh, walking worthy there of uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, a favorite text of mine. Um, you know, examine everything carefully. And I believe that's important. So I look forward to having that discussion. I, uh, you know, earlier today, I, I'm still saying I was sitting here reading. Um, I found an interview you had done with Dr. Stan Monteith. And uh, I believe that's how you say his last name, right? I think so, yes. Yeah, I saw that. I, I, uh, it's, I, we could go on and on about that. Um, part of my testimony in coming to Christ, uh, he was actually, his book, Brotherhood of Darkness, was instrumental in uh, the, the teachings that were being used to lead me to Christ, unfortunately, um, which I would now actually properly call cultic. Um, however, uh, there were some great insights that I still would agree with. So I'm actually looking forward to going back in and reviewing uh, some of your past work. So uh, thank you for coming on the show. You know, I, I think Real quick uh, we've question, marked out. If I may, please. If I may, I have a question for you. What was okay. the name of the pastor at that church before you? Here at Blue Point Bible Church was uh, Pastor Steve Schilling. And before him? Before him was Pastor Claire Chandler. Yeah. Well, see, I knew Claire Chandler. Claire was ah. a regular guest at John Anderson, John Anderson's conferences in in Sparta, North Carolina. And so oh, wow. I had the privilege okay. of getting to know Claire down in those conferences. Oh, that's great. Wow. That's, that's uh, encouraging. I know many people that listen from the Blue Point Bible Church will be encouraged that you knew him. And, uh, you know, I try, uh, we have quite a few copies of his book, Immortalizing Evil, that uh, gets given out. A lot of people correspond with me about that. And, of course, his preterist uh, work, uh, what was it, um, now the name's slipping my mind. Uh, however, it's an unpublished work now, um, but we have quite a few copies of that, and I try to make them available for people. Okay, there's another well, topic to that immortalizing evil that I'd like to discuss with you someday, and that's how the pagan religions immortalized evil and how that hmm. is bearing fruition in the world we live in today. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure that would be an interesting conversation, uh, for sure. Um, well, you know what, I'll tell you what, thank you for uh, coming on, and we'll, I'll correspond with you, and I'll make sure we mark out um, some things for future discussions. And, um, you know, again, I just appreciate your uh, time, you know, marked out to uh, do this interview. Well, so, thank uh, you, Michael. I appreciate your time as well, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be in this podcast with you. 
That's great. You know, you're definitely challenging my studies as the book of Revelation is a uh, upcoming. I'm actually going to be preaching on Revelation chapter 14 at a conference in August. And uh, I know the theme of that conference is the book of Revelation. So lately I've been really taking a, a new examination, if you will, uh, at the book of Revelation. So I appreciate you marking out some of those points and bringing me into this discussion. Um, if you don't mind, can I just pray for you before I let you leave the show? Surely, for me and you. Do you have won't. any? Uh, do you have any specific requests? Oh, not really. I guess just better understanding of Scripture. Amen. All right. Well, if you if I can ask for prayer from you, uh, one thing I'm growing in is uh, this morning I found a quote that kind of highlighted a season that I'm in in my life, and it's um, God is not ignorant to your happiness. However, he will not give you happiness at the expense of holiness. And, you know, I like that. I, I think that that's something I'm growing in in my life, always growing in holiness, of course. So just not my own holiness, but his holiness. And just seeing, you know, what, what God's doing, you know, ultimately walking worthy of uh, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be given. So if I could just garner your prayer Amen. in that regard, I'd appreciate it. Yes, sir. All right. Let's pray. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord, for the privilege to uh, be on the airwaves, to uh, have this fellowship and this opportunity to mark out important studies. Lord, I thank you for my brother Lloyd. I thank you for uh, his studies and his uh, influence in the body of Christ. And I just pray that you will provide the increase as you see fit, Lord, and as you, uh, you guide both of us to uh, examine your word. Lord, thank you for his, fa you know, his family. I, I know that we didn't spend a lot of time talking about his personal life, but I do pray and I trust that you're at work in many ways in his personal life, Lord, and in his family. So I trust that you'll continue to provide the increase there and uh, show your providence in many good ways. Um, Lord, we magnify your holy name. We thank you for everything you've given to us pertaining to life and godliness. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, brother. Uh, go in peace, and I look forward to further correspondence. Thank you, Michael. You as well. God bless you. Yeah, God bless All right. Well, that was another episode here, or our first official episode of Miano Gone Wild Radio. I trust that you're as blessed as I was with this interview and this podcast. So let me just end by praying for you. Those of you that are listening to this podcast, either live or are tuning into our later podcast, Lord, we know that you have come again in glory. You have raised the living and the dead. Resurrect us now from the death of comfort, complacency, sloth, and shallowness, that we might witness your love in life and death. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing or bring you here to the airwaves again rejoicing. At the wonders that he has shown you, may he bring you here again rejoicing once again into our doors. Go in peace, saints. Thank you for tuning in.
Up ahead, 